Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Okay, so um, let me begin by telling you a story. You, you love it when I do that, right? <laughs> I should say, I should preface this by saying, this is going to be a show where we'll, we should have a lot of room for your phone calls. We have one interview. It's pre-recorded. It's going to be in the middle of the show. I'll explain all of that because it's now kind of, in, in an odd way, become a conversation, a show about doing this interview. A little bit, anyway. But let me let me tell you a story. So for 16 years, as some of you know, I was kind of the house liberal on an otherwise commercial radio station. Um, so it was like Rush Limbaugh and Jim Vicevich and all this kind of stuff. And then it was me. Uh, and I had a partner on the air for a while. And, you know, I mean, for a while, the morning show was hosted by a very conservative guy. Sometimes he had a partner, kind of balance him out a little bit. But basically, I was everybody's all the conservative listeners to this particular radio station, I was their idea of what a liberal was. So horns, fangs, you know. Um, and, and I played that role maybe even a little bit more extremely because of that. But a couple of things happened. One of them was that, you know, ultimately, well, I'll tell you a story within a story, which is there's a rating service. Uh, it's it, Well, it used to be Arbitron. And so um, this one day this Arbitron guy is walking through the building and he stops to meet me, which they never do. They're not supposed to interact with on-air people. He said, I just wanted to meet you because I go through these diaries of people who listen to this radio station. And these people, they hate you, but they listen for quite a while because I've never seen anything like this, that they really just hate you and everything you stand for. But they'll listen for like 20 minutes or something. And that's really good, by the way, 20 minutes. So, um, and I think that that was emblematic of something that was going on there, which was that Ultimately, these were very conservative Rush Limbaugh listeners. I mean, not everybody, but there was a preponderance of that kind of person. And they would stick around and listen to my show. And maybe they thought I was kind of funny or they just wanted to hear what I had to say. Or I, somehow or other, I tried to make it human and interesting uh, enough so that maybe if you didn't agree with me, you'd still listen. Which was basically the format of the show. It's like people who don't agree with me listening and sometimes calling up. Uh, and it worked well enough so that I was able to stay on the air there for 16 years, which isn't that easy to do. Um, and um, and I think there were some good things that happened there. I mean, look, there were a lot of people or there was a subset of those people who spent a lot of time trying to destroy me and get me off the, off the air and report me to the FCC about stuff I hadn't done and call the management and demand that I be fired and all that kind of stuff. And that was like sort of a daily occurrence. There was this extra group of people, this special squad of people just trying to destroy me. But the rest of the listeners listened. And I think it was good for both of us. You know, I mean, it was good for them in the sense that ultimately I hope that what I did there was show them that here was this person who didn't share their beliefs, but was in other ways maybe a human being. And they, you know, they just they lived through my life with me. It was the kind of show where people know a lot about the host. You know, if you're sick or you're getting a divorce or whatever, they just, there's no way you can hold that back. It just comes out. So 
you know, ultimately they had to deal with me as a human being. And I think that was probably pretty good for them. And ultimately, too, I took a lot of calls from them. And, you know, if the calls were kind of entertaining and sharp witted and stuff like that, I didn't mind if they were really, really opposed to what I thought. And ultimately, at the end of the three hours every day, you know, nobody had burst into flames or really been destroyed. And that's an important lesson. And it's one that's kind of slipping out, slipping away here in America. Uh, so I say that as, <laughs> as a precursor to telling you that the middle portion of our show today will be an interview with Jordan Peterson. Now, you may not know who Jordan Peterson is. We didn't either. He was pitched to us because he's performing on Friday night of this week at the Toyota Oakdale Theater. Um, and I didn't know who he, who he was. And so we wrote back to Live Nation. They're the promoters. And we said, is it okay that we don't know who that is? And they said, yeah, that's, that's okay. A lot of people don't. But it turns out he's this kind of Canadian, air quotes, intellectual who has become very popular, uh, particularly maybe among a, a, another subpopulation, uh, young white men who feel as though the rules have changed in a way that significantly disadvantages them. Um, and that like everybody else, women, racial and ethnic minorities, everybody else is making out better. And what happened to the good old hierarchies? And he's kind of a, a little nutty. Like he has this whole thing about lobsters, which we, we didn't even have time to get into because he sort of ran out of patience with me. But he has this whole thing about lobsters and how they represent this natural hierarchy and they're very hierarchical and they have, they secrete serotonin just like us, parentheses, pretty much every animal does, close parentheses. <laughs> but, you know, and there's all these things that we can learn for, from lobsters about how it's good that they're uh, hierarchical, alpha, even kind of stand up. Uh, lobsters, like literally stand-up lobsters. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I'm doing a good job of... Betsy, am I doing a good job of summarizing this? So, so he's got this whole thing about lobsters. He's also got this whole thing about postmodernism and Marxism are wrecking this country and maybe Canada too, I don't know. Um, my sense, uh, after some reading and watching his lectures, is he doesn't really know what postmodernism is. Um, but uh, And it doesn't seem likely that Marxism is wrecking America right now. I mean, just heuristically, if you look around, it's kind of hard to see how Marxism is wrecking. But anyway... But he's got this big following. Like, I, from what I can tell, he does these lectures, and I wouldn't be surprised if the theater in Wallingford is sold out or close to that on Friday night, even though this is Connecticut. On the other hand, it is Wallingford. <laughs> and um, sorry, Wallingford. Uh, and so then we thought, well, well, actually, Betsy Kaplan, the senior producer of the show, I could tell she didn't want to, like, interview this guy. <laughs> um, and... But then it turned out that they had bought some, they, they were doing some promotional stuff using airtime here on this radio station. In other words, we have what we call underwriters, and you might hear an underwriter credit. And so you might hear the voice of Kion Wolf or Patrick Scahill or, you know, anybody who, who does these continuity breaks saying made possible by a, by a grant from or maybe even we're giving away a four-pack of tickets to Jordan Peterson. So I said, well, now we're implicated. <laughs> like we've already put this stuff on the air. So we at least need to figure out who this guy is um, and and why he's so popular. And so let's look into it. And that's sort of, I lean that way, generally speaking, like what's going on? Who is this guy? Let's at least find out. Um, so that's a precursor to telling you that in a few minutes, you're going to hear a 15 minute interview with Jordan Peterson. I'm going to tell you in advance, it's not really one of the great interviews I've ever done in my life. <laughs> he's very hard to interview. He's only interested in himself. 
Um, and he doesn't like follow-up questions. And it's very easy to get bogged down because anything that you say that represents the mildest form of, a, of, of, uh, of an objection or he regards as an attack. Anyway, it's there. Yeah, I, I urge you to listen to it just because, like, yeah, people. I, one of the things that I learned recently, this past spring, I was teaching undergraduates. So they're like 18 to 21 years old. And, and one thing that I made them do uh, in a political science course on the state of modern political journalism is read and ingest a very diverse diet of media. And that included, and these most of these kids are, you know, like kind of, they're on a liberal arts campus in a pretty liberal area of the country. And so, yeah, they're liberal. So uh, not all of them, but most of them. But I said, I don't care. You got to read Breitbart. You got to listen to Ben Shapiro. And mostly when they did that, they were the, a recurring theme was, OK, this isn't really exactly the way that I thought it was. You know, they'd sort of heard about Ben Shapiro. They'd heard about they'd heard about Breitbart. Everybody knows Breitbart is disgusting. Um, but then they read Breitbart and it wasn't quite the way they thought it would be. And I think it's really important that rather than relying on these kind of shadows on the wall of 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 the platonic reality that we go and see what it is. You know, I mean, who is Jordan Peterson? Who is not like who do people say Jordan Peterson is? You know, what is Breitbart like? What, not what do people say Breitbart is like? So even if you're, you know, a nice, good, blue bleeding East Coast liberal, it's important to at least get some kind of direct sense of all this stuff. So that leads me very quickly to and then we'll segue into the Jordan Peterson thing. But I want to talk to you a little bit more, just in case you turn the show off during the Jordan Peterson thing. Um, so because then I'll never have a chance to talk to you. And I do, particularly towards the end of the show, I'm hoping we can take some phone calls that react and that kind of thing. And, and I also hope you will feel free to call in about what I'm about to bring up, because I think connected to this is the Steve Bannon New Yorker mess. Now, very quickly to summarize, over the weekend, it was revealed that the New Yorker Festival, which is this live in the city festival that combines um, arts and entertainment and political and policy stuff in a way that perhaps is a little bit too much of a melange. I mean, for example, last year, I believe, among the participants were former National Security Director James Clapper, and Carly Rae Jepsen. So you get the sort of breadth of things. Anyway, this year, one of the real big highlights, maybe the big headliner, was going to be an interview between New Yorker editor David Remnick, one of the really great journalists of this generation, and Steve Bannon. <laughs> so uh, Steve Bannon, of course, the eminence grease, maybe even a different color than grease behind the Trump ascendancy. Um, and so people got upset. New Yorker staff writers got upset. People started talking about boycotting the festival. Major intellectual figures who had been planning to participate in the festival, such as Jim Carrey and Judd Apatow, uh, just announced that they couldn't under no circumstances participate if Steve Bannon was going to be there. Blah, 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 blah. Um, people started threatening to cancel their subscriptions to The New Yorker. I find, by the way, as a rule, that most people who are threatening to cancel their subscriptions to The New Yorker or alternatively stop donating to WNPR don't have subscriptions and or don't donate. <laughs> but it's a good thing to be able to threaten anyway, you know, whether you do it or whether you, you know, actually have a basis or not. So, so the, all this stuff happened. And I found myself thinking, 
you know, and then there was like you, you go on Twitter and there's this incredible denigration of David Remnick as this monster of hubris who, you know, is visiting this this travesty upon us. And, you know, I really do think David Remnick is this fabulously talented, unbelievably accomplished journalist. And I do think that The New Yorker over the last three years when we've needed great reporting and a lot of sanity has both in their digital uh, format and their magazine, which I still get at my house, probably done it as well as anybody else. You know, just done just as they always do. You know, even if they get something wrong, like Remnick kind of endorsed in 2003 the Iraq invasion. I mean, it was a margin call, <laughs> but he kind of came out in favor of it. But then the New Yorker proceeded to do the best reporting of anywhere on what a debacle Iraq was, or at least the ways in which the Iraq military effort, you know, had just gone off the rails in Dexter Filkins and, you know, uh, Stephen Cole, and I can't rattle them off the top of my head, John Lee Anderson, just terrific reporters in there. So, so I just, my thought is, you know, he's David Remnick. He obviously has a plan. <laughs> he's going to do some sharp questioning of Bannon. You could argue that maybe this isn't the right format in which to do it, this festival. But, you know, he kind of banked some significant credibility and credit at this point. So, I, like, I want to know. You know uh, he's not going in there with no plan. I can tell you that. He's just not how Remnick rolls. So, you know, I kind of would be happy to have that happen. And But anyway, he clearly misjudged the current environment, got torn apart on social media for a few hours and then rescinded the invitation, which I would have preferred he not do. But we're kind of familiar with this cycle, right? We see it on college campuses all the time. So-and-so gets invited. Everybody goes nuts. So-and-so gets disinvited. So that's what we've got there, too. Um, and I'm just, I feel as though, okay, I'll say one more thing. Can I, can I say one more thing? What is she saying in there? Is she saying she wants to... She's losing patience with me. Um, so, all right, I'll give out the number. 860-275-7266. I should have done that. 860-275-7266. Um, and um, oh, so I go back to, I'm so old. I, I go back to 40 years ago or so, Yale University was struggling with the que- this exact question. This is not a new question. So, they had been through quite a tumult on campus when inviting George Wallace, former governor of Alabama and occasional candidate for president and an upholder of segregation in every possible toxic way. Uh, they'd invited him to speak on campus. And so there had been this huge thing about, you know, disinvite him, then somebody else would invite him. And uh, this is exactly the kind of stuff we go through now, except it was more than 40 years ago. Um, and then after that, a conservative group on camp- campus invited William Shockley. William Shockley won the Nobel Prize in Physics because he, he basically did the work that led up not only to the transistor, but essentially to the semiconductors we have now. In other words, his work was seminal and instrumental in resulting in all that. But he also just turned into this horrific, misguided, unscientific racist who had all these you know, horrible quasi-eugenics ideas. <laughs> and he got invited to campus. And once again, great tumult. He ultimately was able to speak, but under kind of really tight, tightly controlled conditions. And so... What Yale did was they they had C. Van Woodward, who this historian who was always being asked to do things like this. They had him form a task force and say, let's figure this out. What does it mean to have uh, an environment of freedom of thought and free exploration of ideas? And he produced this really fascinating and to this day rather compelling report 
saying, you know what? You just got to do it. You got, in fact, you've got to have these people come and you've got to trust that the truth. Uh, I mean, th- this country is kind of based on these Lockean ideas, right? The, uh, from, from Locke to Thomas Paine, this, this, this Lockean Enlightenment faith that true ideas will prevail on the field of combat. So you've got to trust that and let people come here, even if they're repellent, uh, if they are significant in some way in, in the story of humankind or the story of American history at this particular moment. Um, you've got to invite them here and then just deal with it. Uh, I'm perhaps not giving this report enough you know, credit for its el- eloquence. But anyway, you get the idea. Um, so... Um, I think that's actually a really good policy. Now, the New Yorker Festival isn't the same thing as a college campus. I grant you that. And the New Yorker Festival, you know, maybe you should think about this a little bit differently. And maybe Remnick made kind of a bad calculation in inviting Bannon in the first place. I would say he made another bad calculation in disinviting him. But by the time he had to do that, his festival was blowing up. Um, like there's a possibility Carly Rae Jepsen might not come back, you know, anyway. Um, but I mean, you, you need to do these things. You need to sort of, you know, let that person come, let that person talk, um, see what that person really says. Because otherwise, I mean, there's several traps that you can fall into. And one of them is that whole Breitbart is disgusting. Have you ever read anything on Breitbart? Well, no, but I know it's disgusting. See, that's that, that's a pathway into lazy thinking. Better, you know, better to really know. All right. So, oh, here's somebody who doesn't think, uh, should I take this call after we play the tape? Yeah, that's a good plan. All right. So what we're going to do now is, for those of you who are in that position about Jordan Peterson, like you sort of know who he is. Um, I, by the end of this, <laughs> by the end of this, you will still just sort of know who he is. I just sort of know who he is. But we thought, it's worth time. It's it, it's worth yeah. It's worth some time to put this guy on the air. So what we're going to do now is we're going to um, go to a break, and then when we come back, you will hear the author and speaker Jordan Peterson. All right, uh, let's get to Jordan Peterson. He's joining us by phone. Uh, he will be appearing on September 7th at the Oakdale Theater. So, first of all, welcome to this conversation. Sorry about the long uh, entrance ramp. Oh, no problem. It's good to have some intro. Okay. So, let's just first of all talk about, I mean, you do a lot of touring. You do a lot of speaking in front of large audiences. You can probably make a reasonable uh, surmise about who will be at the Oakdale uh, Toyota Theater uh, on September 7th. Who's gonna, who comes out to see you? Who, who is your audience? People who are trying to get their acts together. But wouldn't that cover just about so, any, anybody? I mean, could we shrink that down a little bit? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure if we can, really. I mean, the people who are coming to see me and who are attracted to what I've been lecturing about, say, on, on YouTube, are people who are really diligently attempting to take responsibility for their lives and, and perhaps responsibility for things beyond their lives as well. And so people are interested in that because they've been fed nothing but a diet of, I would say, rights and impulsive pleasure for several generations. And that's very, that's very thin nourishment, especially if you're in a time of trouble. 
I, I don't know. I mean, I think somebody listening to this conversation so far would say, well, what's controversial about that guy? So, uh, you know, why would there be a lot of articles about him worrying about, you know, what kind of influence he might have on society or thoughts he might be stirring up, I think, in particular among young men, young white men, probably. So I don't know. Why do you think you're controversial? Well, I, I got embroiled in controversy in Canada because I publicly, publicly opposed a, a bill that required compelled speech on the part of Canadian citizens, and it purported to do nothing but add protection for people who have variant gender identity to the Canadian Bill of Human Rights and the and the and the Canadian Criminal Code. So, and so I opposed that on the basis of my objection to compelled speech because I think that free speech is identical with free thought, and because I happened to oppose a bill that was supported by I would say people on the radical and activist left, they did everything they could to tar and feather me. We can come back to C-16. That's the Canadian bill you're talking about. But what are you saying that would be so disturbing to the radical left that they would be worried about having to contend either successfully or unsuccessfully? Oh, well, I think the entire way that the radical left divides up reality is reprehensible. I think that they're fundamentally collectivist tribalists they're attempting to divide us along identity lines to make our fundamental categories race or sex or gender or sexual preference or disability. There's a whole handful of potential group identities. And that the leftist theory is that those are the defining hallmarks of each individual and that the best way to view history is as a battleground between different identity groups, oppressor and oppressed and victimizer and victim. You know, when I deal with the kinds of people that you're talking about right now, I don't mean people on the radical left. I mean people who are of other races, uh, other sexual orientations, uh, people with disabilities. Mostly what I hear from them is they want to be treated like everybody else. That's their goal, not to stay right. mired in a particular identity set and have that be the fundamentally fundamental way they're understood. They just want to be they want to be treated like everybody else, have the same opportunities well, as know, everybody else. I, I agree. Well, I'm you know, uh, although I've been accused by the the people who have gone after me of being transphobic and bigoted and all these sorts of things. I've had many, many letters from transsexual people who have fully supported my stance and have said that their positioning as the latest poster boy for the radical left has done nothing but make their life extraordinarily difficult by making these different groups are the standard bearers of this particular ethos, this collectivist ethos. And I think it's a very dangerous ethos for all sorts of reasons. Not least because you can assign every individual to multiple group identities. So even though it was motivated in principle by egalitarian motives. Are we back to C-16 when you say it was motivated by egalitarian motives? Well, all all of the identity politics rhetoric is motivated by the desire for equality of outcome, let's say. Right. The idea is that if every, every... Uh, If the distribution of resources in society doesn't map the distribution of groups in society, that that's evidence that the society is tyrannical and that things should be redistributed. If by equality of outcome we're talking about, well, you know, our pay disparities between men and women, uh, okay, well, no, not, that's probably not a good outcome. If if we're dealing with big numbers here and there really is pretty obviously a trend in, in one direction or the other, what's wrong with, yeah, with trying to fix that? There isn't obviously a trend in one direction or the other. That's the thing. And the question is who decides when it's the same work and what constitutes equal pay? Because it's not self-evident. And there, the evidence that there is... Uh, long-standing prejudicial pay discrepancies between men and women is actually very weak. 
if you take into account the intervening factors. So, for example, men are more likely to work in dangerous jobs. They're more likely to work outside. They're more likely to move. But, and but those aren't gender. Those aren't gender linked. Yeah, but I was talking and about doing this. In other words, what if we what if we equalize for all those variables? What what if we then then the gender pay gap disappears? I, I you know it's not in the numbers that I've ever looked at. I mean, yeah, it, well, this is actually an area of expertise of mine, and I do multivariate analysis all the time, and the evidence for that's quite clear. In fact, if you look at young men and young women, young women actually out out earn young men, and that's particularly the case if they're single. Well, that, you know, that, there may be some truth about people entering the job market right now. I mean, I, you know, if you read Hannah Rosen's work and stuff like that, there's uh, there are some there's some evidence to the uh, to the effect that yeah, you I mean, read we, Hannah Rosen's work. That would be a good start. Why, why wouldn't I mean? If, about is reliable. But that's like somebody I saying you shouldn't read Jordan Peterson's work. Shouldn't you read everybody's work and then try to evaluate it? Well, I, I have evaluated Hannah Rosen's work, and that's exactly why I'm making that claim. She starts from an ideological position and then does backflips intellectually to justify it. Like the idea that there's that there's systemic oppression of women in the workforce with regards to wages is is preposterous. And if you look in many many disciplines now, women are occupying a preponderance of positions of power in all the healthcare disciplines, for example. But when you say right so, now, aren't you kind of cherry picking a moment in a younger generation as opposed to the entire, uh, in my case, American workforce? I think if you look at the whole American workforce, you don't see that that kind well, of advantage. Well, if you look at the American workforce, what you see is that women have a, a have a market tendency to move towards part-time employment as they mature, and the reason for that is that they, um, you know, that they they. Well, part of it is the additional responsibilities they take on with regards to childcare and so forth, and the decision to spend more time with their families is a perfectly reasonable decision. And to the degree that a gender pay gap exists, it's not a gender gap, it's a gap between mothers and everyone else. And that might be a reasonable thing to take into consideration socially, but it's not by any means the same thing as a gender pay gap. It's a penalty that people who have children pay, especially if they're female. But that's a much more specific and specified issue than claiming that there's some sort of patriarchal conspiracy to keep women's wages low. I, I think people who are concerned about the pay gap don't necessarily posit a patriarchal conspiracy yeah, to keep women's wages low. Well, some people, some people may. Some people may. Most of them do, including Hannah Rosen. But it, a lot of this, so, and that's the underlying, that's the underlying motivation for the claim. Generally, is it's an attempt to validate the the more fundamental presupposition that. We live in an unfair patriarchy and that women have been oppressed for centuries and that it's a consequence of terrible men. And I don't buy any of that. I don't buy the patriarchy. I don't buy the tyranny. I don't believe that women were differentially oppressed throughout the course of human history. All right. So as, so long, it, as long as we're talking about sex roles, let's get into a term that you use. Maybe you can explain it a little bit. Enforced monogamy. Uh, explain well, what you mean by it. that's a term that New York Times journalists use when they discuss me rather than a term that I use. All right. Use your own term so, for it. What, what, what are we talking about here? Well, enforced monogamy is an anthropological term. It's been used in the literature for 100 years. And all that I meant was that human societies at, at large generally speaking, across the world and at all times, have encouraged monogamous bonds as a way of stabilizing child-rearing environments, providing women with stable long-term partners, and decreasing competitive violence among men. Is it controversial to point out that monogamous norms that are properly enforced are appropriate? What are monogamous norms properly enforced? What would that mean? 
how about con- how about conventions of marriage and stable partnership? Yeah, but you can't enforce. Can we enforce conventions of? Of course you can. Of course you enforce them. Look, my son's getting married in a month. Mm-hmm. Let's say he comes to me in a year and says, "Geez, Dad, I had such a good time in the last year. I've had seven affairs, and my wife hasn't heard about any of them." You expect me to pat him on the head and tell him that he's doing a good job? Or to say, look, kid, what the hell's wrong with you? On the other hand, I mean, for example, I have a 28-year-old son. He's not married yet. I have no interest in seeing him get married yet. I don't think he's ready to get married yet. And I don't think for him to get married is necessarily a contribution to society. I mean, that's a personal choice. It'll have whatever effect on society it has. It seems like an odd thing to suggest that that heterosexual monogamy accomplishes something for society. Well, you know, that it's it's very difficult to actually hear you say that. It's been known since the time of Aristotle that the one of the fundamental building blocks of a of a conventional, stable, complex society is a monogamous nuclear family. And that and the fact that that's become debatable is really quite remarkable. And you know, you also might say that if your son's twenty eight and he's he's not in a stable monogamous relationship, like what's he waiting for precisely? Well, I guess the answer would be, whose business is it? I guess what I'm struggling with a little bit, uh, Jordan Peterson, is that notion that if, say, heterosexual monogamy is a norm from which we depart at our peril, and then on the other hand, women often have to accept commensurately less productive and less economically rewarding careers because they wind up being child bearers and then carers of children. It's kind of like you're setting up a game that really does have pretty obvious winners and losers, the men being the winners, the women being the losers. No, I don't agree with that conclusion at all. And I don't think there is any evidence that men are predominantly the winners. There is a disproportionate number of, of men at the very top of power hierarchies. Almost all of the people who are seriously at the bottom of things are men as well. So there might be more men at the top, but there's certainly more men at the bottom. Women tend to occupy the middle. So, and I don't think there's, a, there's any reason at all to concentrate on the tiny proportion of men who are disproportionately successful and to make them the defining feature of society when you have to take into account well, the vast number of men that commit suicide, for example, or the vast number of men who are imprisoned, or the vast number of men who are alcoholic or or who have drug abuse problems, but no one pays any attention to them because they're just dispossessed men. And yet many women listening to you, yet many women listening to you would think, do think, you want them to go backwards. You want any progress that they've made to be erased in favor of this much more traditional and limiting vision of human relations. What's your response to that? What what have I said today that would be any indication of that? Everything that you just said. I think that, no, that's not true at all. It's 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 an appalling generalization, as a matter of fact. I never said anything about women being destined to occupy traditional roles. I just said that um, society isn't set up so that women are systematically oppressed. And you inferred the rest. Right. I didn't, I, didn't, like I didn't say Dustin. I just said it seems like something you want. That you... No, it's not something I want, and it's not something I said I wanted. I'm perfectly happy to see society advance in a manner that allows everyone to have equality of opportunity. And I think that everyone's interests are better served when we all have access to the talent of every group in an untrammeled manner and in a reasonable competition. 
Right. But the, the Rawlsian argument about that would be that you can't simply have a day where you suddenly announce that we are going to maximize everybody's brain power equally into whatever whatever percent of brain power you make up in the human race. That's how much we're going to get out of you, because you've got, in fact, women, people of color, people whose whose opportunities and whose uh, and the opportunities of whose forebears have been limited in such a way that they're really not hitting off the same golf tees as everybody yeah, else. Well, that ultimately, you have well, to modify society so that you can. Yeah, well, maximize that, everybody's potential. Now, well, yeah. that, that's one way of looking at it, but you're, you're, you're definitely looking at the situation through the lens of victim and victimizer, and so you yeah, assume that victim. the... Well, if they're oppressed, how are they not victims? I, I actually didn't say oppressed. I said just their, their opportunities hadn't been equal. They hadn't had access generationally. I mean, if you look at African-Americans, they haven't had access generationally to the same levels of health care, education, you name it, all the things that constitute a working start. When the starting gun goes off and they start running, they're not starting from the same place as everybody else. That's not oppression and victimization. That's just kind of a historical reality. The it's the way things have worked. How about the Asians? I would say the Asians are a separate conversation. Oh, yes. Well, that's convenient for your line of argumentation. I can tell you that. Anyways, we were supposed to talk for 15 minutes, oh. and I think we're far over time. Okay. Sorry about that. Sorry yeah. we ran over. Interesting to talk to no you. Problem. Thanks for your time. Yep. That's Jordan Peterson. He is coming to the Toyota Oakdale Theater. Possibly you will want to go hear more of what he has to say. It's on September 7th at 7.30. Do I have your respect? All right. So before we get back to that, let me tell you the situation in which we find ourselves right now, uh, which is that uh, usually you hear Wolfie read the credits here, but I forgot to, <laughs> I forgot to write them. So uh, I'll just do it. So do I get music or what? Okay, there's your music. That's kind of your music, but whatever. Okay, so today's show was produced by, in fact, Wolfie and especially the ever-patient uh, Betsy Kaplan, whose patience was very much tested by Jordan Peterson. Uh, anyway, uh, Amanda Fish does not plan to go to that particular concert uh, or whatever it is. Uh, the part of Bill Curry was played by John Stuart Mill. Tomorrow is a mystery show because we like just to have mysteries for you that are so fun to unwrap. Or we haven't quite figured out what the show is. But it might heavily involve Schmalen Schmappernick. I can't even do a Schmalen Schmappernick. Anyway, so back to the show. Uh, and so that was the Jordan Peterson thing. And uh, our number is 860-275-7266. I found him difficult to interview because, I mean, we kind of got bogged down. I suppose as people who disagree can get bogged down uh, by just sort of like trying to nail down certain facts. You know, is there a pay gap? Isn't there? That kind of stuff. Uh, but And we never got to like the stuff that I thought was the most interesting, like postmodernism and Marxism and stuff like that, but and, and then he got mad. Uh, anyway, um, and I'm happy to talk about that interview if you want, but I'd sort of rather talk about this question of is it or is it not important for us to have first a a firsthand experience or something close to a firsthand experience of the kind of objectionable material that begins to get traction out there with a different group of people? I say yes. Uh, 
Um, but I also get I get the counter argument. As long as the counter argument is that there's I mean, th there have been attempts even to kind of study at the level of social science whether or not having a conversation, a sort of a David Remnick, Steve Bannon kind of conversation where the interlocutor is, you know, really challenging uh, the person who's an invited guest, whether that does any good at all or whether it just creates yet another increment of exposure for that, you know, theoretically objectionable person. So I get that argument. Uh, I really do. Um, and I also get the argument, which is sometimes advanced around here, that we've sort of maxed out on that whole idea of going and finding, let's say, a Trump voter in coal country and asking a lot of questions. We've now kind of heard that. Um, but, but, I mean, one of my problems with the Bannon thing was if it doesn't happen – then it's like a Schrodinger's box, right? You don't really know what was in there. I mean, Bannon could have said, you know what? I see all this stuff being played out by Trump and it's not going the way that I thought it would. Or or he might have said, Look, I think Trump's an even bigger idiot than you know I might have thought while I was working at the White House. Or he might have said, you know what? I give up on this guy. I'm going to get somebody else who can really do at a much more draconian and punitive level the stuff that I really wanted to do. I don't know what he was going to say. Um, you know, he's a significant enough force in society that I would probably be kind of interested to see to see what a David Remnick uh, could get out of him. But anyway, I am also, um, you know, I'm up for what you guys have to say. 860-275-7266 is the number to call. 860-275-7266. Uh, we have somebody who wants to call in specifically about Jordan Peterson. So here we go. Uh, this is Tim in Old Lyme. Hi, Tim. Hi. How are you? Good. Um, my my point is is um, it's you know if you took a look at everything that Peterson talks about, mm -hmm. I mean, you focused in on the point one percent of the thing that maybe would be most contentious for your audience. And one of the things that's interesting is in England, for example, in the UK, a lot of people on the left are going out and seeking inf are seeking uh, Peterson's ideas. I mean, you could also talk about the fact that he thinks that um, like the alt-right is reprehensible, and he, he has gotten letters from thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people saying that they've brought him back from the depths of hell and, you know, taught he's, you know, hates that whole philosophy, and he's reaching these people. So why would you not focus on that and then focus on something that's, you know, very contentious to a liberal? Right. Well, no. First of all, I did do a fair amount of reading before this, and I, I, it sounds like you and I might have even read the same Weekly Standard article that made that that point. Um, you know, I mean, the way that I conducted that interview, no, I actually, oh. I actually listened to him. That's where I got it. Okay. Well, I mean, if you listen to the way that I conducted that interview, uh, uh, what I said was, "Why do you think you're controversial?" I didn't say, why are you controversial with left wing people or, I, you know, he could have said, well, the alt right really hates me. He didn't. That's not what he said. I didn't ask him. You, you brought up you brought up the enforced monogamy, which to me is who's a better representative for how to treat their marriage, Donald Trump or Barack Obama. His argument is a society of Barack Obama's is a healthier society 
than a Trump Melania. Right. Well, he also denied that he's... Uh, first of all, I didn't bring that up until we were way down the road in that interview. I let him set up the stakes of that interview, Tim. I, I just said, why do you think you're controversial? And he said he was controversial with the left. So, I mean, I don't think it's really appropriate uh, to, to, to blame me for the for the direction we took after that. That's That, that was how he set it up. I just asked follow-up questions. Uh, yeah, he's he's whole, the one who just... Before you, before you even started the interview, your whole thing was was basically painting him in as a... I mean, comparing him to Steve Bannon is just... Well, first of all, that was not... Sure. Yeah, that was not part of the interview. He didn't hear that part of the interview. That The interview okay. with me and Jordan Peterson happened days and days and days ago, what you heard okay. before the show was me. So I, I, what I'm talking about there... And I'm not making an equivalence among all these people, but I'm talking about people that. So I, I should maybe say that we got objections from our listenership when there were, you know, mentions of uh, Peterson's show as these kind of underwriting credits that appear. You and, know, and, and like I people, it, people were very troubled by that. If I was only hearing the kind of stuff that you're saying, mm-hmm. I would be like, well, what the hell are you putting this guy on? But if you actually listen to what he says, then I think people would have an actually. I mean, you. It seemed like that interview was was like just really focused on controversy and politics. And the reality is he doesn't really talk about politics that much. Right. I was. Well, first of all, the interview seemed to be about gender mainly. That seemed to be where he wanted wanted to go. I just I wanted to do two things. Uh, One of them. The second one is I want to get from you what it is you got from him, because I think that's really important. And I'm genuinely interested in that. Just to go back to the enforcement argument thing, I thought he was a little disingenuous there saying, well, that's just what The New York Times says that I say or something. Well, no, there was a direct quote from him. He used the term enforced monogamy. So, and, and that's a little, that is a little bit of Peterson's very shape-shifty style. He'll say something and then he'll deny that he said it and then he'll claim that somebody else said it about him. And that that's kind of a repeated technique that I don't particularly enjoy. But, but I would be very interested to know. You're obviously a smart person with an agile mind. What is it that you are getting out of Jordan Peterson? Well, you know, he's, he's really... A very deep thinker, and, and you know the, the whole thing about putting him his his him in air quotes as an intellectual is another, I think, just a bizarre thing. I mean, he's he, he really talks a lot about responsibility, sorting yourself out, where you get meaning in life, that you get meaning in life by um, you know taking responsibility for yourself and for your family and for you know that kind of stuff, and and that's where the real meaning in life comes from. Although you could probably get that from a pulpit on a Sunday morning or from either your father or a very wise uncle or something like that. I mean, I'd still yeah, be. And, I think, and yeah. I think that's absolutely true. I think that the, the, you, when you talk about why do young men hear that, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of young men out there today who have never heard that. Now, people our age have probably have heard that from when they were kids. But there are, there are kids who are 20, 22 years old who literally have never heard this stuff before. Well, uh, that that may be. But I mean, I think it does have to be even what you heard in that interview. And I didn't make him say any of that stuff. But for example, for a woman listening to that interview and hearing that there's no such thing as a pay gap, um, which I don't think any serious economist would agree with. uh, You know, I mean, I think for women listening to that or or, or to the notion that that in order. Yeah, go ahead. Define it as a pay gap or an income gap, Mm -hmm. because there's absolutely without a doubt an income gap. But do you believe that a teacher working in a public school in Connecticut with the same qualifications and experience is getting paid less than a man? I'd want to look at those numbers. I don't know the answer to that specific question, but certainly, well, you know, I'll, they're, I'll, yeah. I'll put it to you like this. If that's against the law, 
So in order to believe that this get this um, wage gap exists, you'd have to also believe that every trial lawyer in the United States is in on the conspiracy. Except that that's sort of a double-edged sword from Peterson's point of view, because the argument that he comes back with is it's almost impossible to equalize work, although I would agree that third-grade teacher in a Connecticut public school versus third-grade teacher in a Connecticut public school, you should be able to equalize that. But Yeah, but at the same school. But uh, but, uh, what I'm saying is that Peterson's argument is the opposite of the one that you're making right now. No, it isn't, actually. Well, in that conversation, he said there's no—it's almost impossible to to prove that two jobs are equivalent, are equal enough so that you can then measure their pay. He, He said that in that interview. Um, so, I, you know, I, I just I think it, I think it's possible to give good advice to young men about being more responsible without reducing women or redefining women f- much more towards their procreative function and the necessity that they get married so that young men don't become violent and or commit suicide. Where did you know? that come from? That's insane what that, you just said. It's, it's right in there in the no, stuff that... He, <laughs> no, it isn't. That's in, that's, in a, in a, in, that's, that's in newspaper articles saying here's what he meant by saying this. There is no place where he actually said that. And in fact, he says if you're a, a young man and you can't get a woman... And, and women keep rejecting you. He says over and over, the problem is with you. Sort yourself out. Make yourself worth something to somebody. Well, he may say that, but that, that's a, the other argument that he makes in this kind of enforced monogamy argument is that it's... it's enforced it, monogamy just means a society that's based on monogamy, which is what we've had and what we continue to have, unless... You're going to make the argument that what Trump does is a better model than what Barack Obama does. Okay, no, that's obviously a straw straw man argument. I'm no, not. I'm not. I'm not, going, I'm not going to endorse the, the Trump mirror. Is a socially enforced monogamy where you say people should live like Barack Obama. Right. I, I, but in general, what we do in 2018 is say that people are free to make a variety of choices and that Donald Trump and Barack Obama are not the only two. Anyway, so it seems like kind of a false choice system you're setting up here. Anyway. All right. I didn't really mean to get into a long, lavish conversation about Jordan Peterson. I'm much more interested in the whole question of whether you put this kind of person on the air, uh, whether you allowed this, pers- this kind of person at the uh, New Yorker Festival. I'm in favor of letting that happen. Uh, but So anyway, 860-275-7266. We're going to run out of time pretty quick. Uh, but here's Matthew from Sims. Oh, Matthew from Sims Ray has hung up. Just let me go right there. So let me just go back to what I was saying before, way at the beginning of the show, because <laughs> it's interesting to hear from Tim, and I think maybe Matthew was going to go in the same direction, because mostly what we get in a Jordan Peterson situation is kind of the opposite kind of feedback, which is don't put this person on the air. This person uh, exists for the purpose of promulgating a lot of very hierarchical ideas that are really meant to retard the progress of groups that are making progress under a more heterodox society. Um and my thought is, you know, kind of for the sake of the Tims of this world who get a lot out of this. No, let's just hear the guy. Let's hear what he actually says. Now, I think when you put Jordan Peterson on the air and you let him talk, and I really didn't try to make him say anything in particular, that's where he goes. That was like that was kind of very quickly where he goes. If you want to know the truth, I was much much more interested in talking to him uh, about particularly his ideas about postmodernism, which is a concept I really feel like he is either intentionally repurposing and misusing 
or which he doesn't understand. I can't really tell from watching and reading and stuff like that which one of those it is. Uh, anyway, let's go to another phone call. Billy. Hi, Billy. You're on the air. Hi. Yeah, so I just wanted to say, I, you know, as a woman, certainly I had some interesting um, regurgitation to um, the comments from your interview earlier. But what I will say is this. He still needs to be part of the discussion because I think we have to, as Americans, be progressive and being open and understanding, at the very least, how the other side is thinking, whichever side that is, which, wherever you fall, I think it's critical that we're open to continuing those dialogues. And if we respond in the way that sort of the alt-right responds, we're certainly putting up walls as opposed to breaking them down. First of all, uh, thanks for that comment. I assume by regurgitations you mean you threw up in your mouth. But, um, Correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, let me just you know, say another thing about this, and I, I don't know whether this builds on your comment or not, but I, I, one thing that disturbs me is, like, after the Toronto incident, like I didn't know what incels were. People start talking about incels, and, and I start reading about this, and it's not the first time. You could you could say this about QAnon and some of the other stuff. And there are these mm-hmm. movements that get going, and they become pervasive enough to actually influence the actions of people in very negative, destructive, and in this case, lethal ways. And I've never heard of them, and I'm really making an effort <laughs> as a talk radio host to follow what's going on in society. And I, so I, when I hear you say what you say, I, what I would add is, if you don't do it, if you don't get these conversations going and try, try to figure out who's out there, what are they thinking, what are they reading, how is it influencing them, what kinds of conclusions are they coming to? Like, I don't, it's, it's, it creeps me out when I pick up a newspaper and start reading about incels, one of whom, you know, killed a bunch of people, and I've never heard this term before. That That's means, correct. yeah, go ahead. That's correct, because you need to have, you need to know the source of these conversations. You need to know the source of this type of thinking in order to be able to be effective in participating in the dialogue instead of being anti every sentiment that's contrary to your own. Right. Uh, Billy, that's a great uh, place to leave it. And uh, that's a great place, unfortunately, to end the show. Um, Although I do want to say some of this may get carried over tomorrow in our mystery show, which may or may not be about a person whose name sounds like Schmalen Schmappernick. There, I, I did it right, right? I think I did it right that time. Okay, so thanks to everybody who helped out today. Oh, did I say hi to Phil? Phil is visiting us. Phil from Yukon is visiting us uh, as a potential intern. So right now we're going to turn him over to the recruiting people. You know, take, I think they're not allowed to shoot baskets with him. Is that how that works? Yeah. We don't want to get another NCAA fine here. We've got those up the kazooty now.